is Emily. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Today's episode is kind of a bummer, just to warn you in advance. It's something that I got very angry and fired up about as I was researching and just got more and more angry. Um, for many women, for a very long time, sprinkling talc powder or talcum powder or baby powder in your underpants is a common and normal hygiene practice. Um, there was a lawsuit in 2016 where a woman named Jacqueline Fox had been using baby powder in her underpants for 40 years since she was a teenager, and it was as common as brushing her teeth or washing her face. Um, Fox later developed ovarian cancer, and her family, after she died, sued the company Johnson & Johnson and won because they determined there might have been a link between her use of baby powder in her underpants for many years and her developing ovarian cancer. So today we're going to be talking through that lawsuit, talking through some of the science around whether or not there actually is a link between using talcum powder in your underpants and ovarian cancer and why this sort of exists in the first place. Why are we all sprinkling powders on our underpants in an attempt to make our body parts smell less like body parts. Right, exactly. And I think what's so enraging about this lawsuit is the evidence points to criminal negligence on the part of Johnson & Johnson because they were aware of these linkages. And even though the, the science isn't perfect, of course, but you know, the link between the use of talcum powder or baby powder by women in their genital area, in their underpants, um, has been connected to cancer and ovarian cancer in particular. Even knowing that connection, Johnson & Johnson was actively pursuing campaigns that targeted minority women, targeted women with messages of, you know, you need this product especially um, because the way that your body exists as it is is not good enough. And that's really one of the most horrifying, concerning, and enraging undercurrents to this whole conversation is the widespread assumption that, yeah, women and your body and your vagina are not pure, are not clean, are, are disgusting and require products. And the way that they are, um, that sort of disgust assumption is really enraging to me. It's really enraging, but it's also so common. I definitely grew up thinking that I was supposed to wear panty liners that smelled like flowers so that my vagina did not smell like a vagina. Right. I was definitely taught, particularly as a black woman, that something about our bodies was different and more repugnant and we had to mask that. I grew up the same way that the women in this lawsuit, I grew up thinking that sprinkling baby powder in your underpants was good hygiene. That's sort of what broke my heart about this quote from the woman who um, ultimately died of ovarian cancer. Um, She says, I was raised up on it, she said in a deposition. They were there to help you stay fresh and clean. We ladies have to take care of ourselves. And that quote... Um, this idea that taking care of yourself as a woman means masking the normal smell of your, your genitals. And, yeah. and that's supposed to be taking care of yourself. Right. When in fact, it seems as though that is what led to her death of ovarian cancer. It's awful. And we see a lot of that in advertising around women's products, don't we? Right? Like this is to enhance your natural beauty or whatever it might be. And, We have to remember that someone's making a profit off of that assumption. Someone's making a profit off of the assumption and they have a financial vested interest in 
us thinking of our own bodies as unclean, unpure, yes. in need of fixing. Right. Vaginas smell like vaginas. Right. They don't smell like baby powder. They don't smell like roses. Right. They don't smell like a gain. A, yeah. This is not like a Tide scented <laughs> thing, okay? This is your body. Yes, and a normal healthy vagina might not smell like an autumn rain. Right. <laughs> And it's different than, I also related it to perfumes writ large. Like, there's a reality that deodorant serves as a good function for your body, if that's, you know, what I mean, if that's your thing. And perfumes can be fun, but perfumes and deodorizers and of chemicals that we're applying to our reproductive organs, that's not just a nice pick-me-up. That can be a chemical uh risk that women are taking. Definitely. And her son, right, Marvin Salter, um, the son of the woman who was at the center of this uh lawsuit, really put it perfectly because making the assumption that baby powder is safe shouldn't be a hard thing to do. He said, quote, it has to be safe. It's put on babies. It's been around forever. Why haven't we heard about any ill effects? Which is exactly what I thought, right? And I, I, I think the assumption that something you pull off the shelf in the baby section of your grocery store or in the beauty aisle and, and companies are actively saying that putting this in your underpants is not a bad idea. It's natural to assume that that must be true. Well, I think like a lot of folks, uh, I was totally thinking the same thing. They couldn't sell this product. They couldn't market it for use by infants if it wasn't safe. But here's why that's not actually true. Baby powder is considered a cosmetic, which does not need to be approved by the FDA under the 1938 Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. The law was actually laid out in a 345-page document, and only two of those pages were devoted to the safety of cosmetics. And another sort of wrinkle of that is that the American Academy of Pediatrics actually doesn't even recommend the use of baby powder in between diaper changes on actual babies. They don't suggest that people use it because babies can inhale it, and it can cause damage to their lungs. Right. I mean... There was, uh, we'll get into the science on this a little bit later, but there were findings in the research that show these tiny little particles of baby powder or of talcum powder can embed themselves in your body. Where do you think that's going? This is stuff that can embed itself like a hard fibrous thing in your body. Um, when it shouldn't be there, whether it's in your lungs or in your cervix or in your <sighs> ovaries. So it's just, it's horrifying that knowing that a, the government is not there to protect women on cosmetics. No. The government literally does not seem to care about cosmetics, which can have tons of toxins in them. And by the way, that's an anomaly. That's, again, part of our American exceptionalism. Lots of other countries have forbidden chemicals and their use in cosmetics and in women's um, panty liners yeah. and tampons in other parts of the world that are A-OK to be flying off the shelves here in the United States. Yeah, that is, you know, let freedom ring, right. die of lead poisoning because of your lipstick. Right. Exactly. No, nothing says freedom in America. <laughs> like the freedom to make a profit off of chemicals that could potentially harm women. But isn't that part of just letting your essence of internal beauty shine through of enhancing your natural beauty? I mean, it's worth it if you go to an early grave right. smelling like spring rain, right? Maybe she's born with it. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's a chemical Maybe it's a chemical slowly killing her. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Um, Black, like, there's going to be some dark humor in this episode, y'all, because it's just so depressing. It's so depressing and it's also just enraging. It's mm. so enraging. So just to level set for a moment, to get into the sort of nitty gritty of, of talcum powder. So according to the American Cancer Society, 
Talcum powder is made from talc, a mineral made up of mainly elements of magnesium, silicone, and oxygen. As a powder, it absorbs moisture and helps cut down on friction, making it useful for dry skin and preventing rashes. It's commonly used in cosmetic products such as baby powder and adult body and facial powders, as well as a number of other consumer products. Question on that. So men use baby powder on their genitals. They do. Regularly. Am I remembering that correctly? <laughs> I, remember, I feel like that's a thing. I remember going to a music festival called Bonnaroo where all the guys, someone had brought a, a thing of gold bond powder. Gold bond, that's and all it. the guys were using it on their crotches. Yeah, that's yeah. a real thing because if we're, we can't talk with disgust about their bodies if we're not talking, we don't want to bring disgust to your facial expression. It was it's not it's going a, along with it. It's a gross memory because literally all, so Bonnaroo was this hot, sweaty <laughs> festival and there was a long discussion about Ball chafing and ball sweat, <laughs> and I was in this van full of guys. Okay, I just remember, like in my mind, I was like, I'm in an open field. I'm not here. No, in your mind, you were like, I'm going to repurpose this information into a podcast someday. <laughs> because it's true, like chafing is real. Chafing That's is what real. Baby powder is for because there's not. I mean, the question becomes, is this something that men should worry about too? I don't. I mean, we didn't really come across that when looking into this, but it's not like there aren't orifices down there. Totally. That they could run into as well. But do you think that, that's a good question. Do you think that men are taught that they're sweaty, you know, balls? genitals? Are you about to say yeah, sweaty balls, say balls on this podcast? But I caught myself. <laughs> are they taught the same way that we're taught that that is unclean and gross and repugnant and there's nothing worse than, than being someone that has smelly genitals? I feel like women are taught that there's nothing more awful as a woman than being smelled. Then, yeah, being yeah, smelled. I see what you're saying. Well, I think having a period, having a menstrual cycle definitely adds to that anxiety. And I would say, I think it probably varies household to household dramatically. But yeah, there's a whole consumer angle to products that can make women feel like the way they, their bodies naturally smell are bad. And here's a product that's a solution right. to buy. Men don't get the the hitting that message over their head, I think, like in the same way that women do. Yeah, and I, I think I've mentioned this in the episode we did around veganism. There was this really awful trend going around social media with young people called the Clean Panty Challenge. Oh, and yeah. it was challenging young women to take pictures of the insides of their panties to prove that they were unsullied, and if that meant they were clean or better right. than other women who, if the bottom of their, the lining of their panties was, you know, blemished by some sort of um, liquid or discharge. Yeah. But again, it's normal for vaginas to have discharge. Right. So you're advocating for shaming people who right. have normal, healthy, functioning body parts. Right. And something to note is if you are a woman who is anxious or maybe your body is changing down there and there are things happening that seem unusual, like you're having a different discharge that's that does not look like a normal day in your panties, <laughs> you know, if there's a smell that doesn't seem right, talk to your doctor. Don't mask it with some cheap product you can buy off the shelves that the FDA does not approve of or care about approving. Um, you know, talk to your doctor and find out what is real and don't assume that, oh yeah, I just have, you know, something really like weird happening downstairs that's a product can solve for me. Right. I think if there is something weird happening um, with your body, have a professional take a look or get to a minute clinic or whatever it might be. Don't assume that this is like a normal part of being a woman that needs to be solved. With oh, the product. I have a really 
gross story that might be TMI for our listeners. Yeah, I was wondering what is happening over there. I want to share it, but then people are going to write in and say, why did you share that disgusting story? But it does end with me going to a doctor. Okay, Um, so I'll, I'm going to say it. Um, I had a bad yeast infection. And at the time, this is when I was trying to go vegan. At the time, I was on this kick of wellness and cleanliness. I had gotten into like, um, like drinking um, juices. Yeah, I was was sort of like really on that vibe for a hot minute. So when I had a yeast infection, I knew it was a yeast infection. I saw that using, um, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, so who knows? Don't take this advice. Yeah, don't Just take this quit. advice. I read someplace that using unsweetened plain yogurt, dipping it into a, dipping a tampon into it and inserting it into yourself could help cure a yeast infection. And I thought, oh, great. So I did that. The next day, it had gotten worse. So then I did some more researching and it said, oh, putting an unpeeled piece of garlic in your vagina and sleeping with it can help. I have so read that. So then I did that. Oh then the next God, day, it was you're... worse. So then I went to the store and was like, it's time for chemicals. I bought Monistat, which apparently... A lot of doctors don't recommend that you use those like those monostat creams that are supposed to cure a yeast infection in one day. That can be really bad for your vagina because it's such powerful cream. So then I used that. Then at this point, I was like, it's time to get to a doctor. When I went to the gynecologist, she was like, she looked at, she looked inside and she said, well, there's so much going on here. <laughs> you put so many things into your vagina. I'm glad you finally <laughs> talked to a professional. <laughs> and she was like, if left to your own devices, like, what would you try next? <laughs> it was the most embarrassing thing. She was like, well, I'm glad that you stopped putting things into your vagina and just went to the doctor. <laughs> Oh my God, second. I'm so sorry that happened. I'm, I'm sorry if that was TMI. Well, first of all, yeast infections are the worst. They're the worst. And that's a good example of a discharge that doesn't feel, seem, or smell normal. But here's the thing. It's important to also remember that, like, that's a good example of what needs medical attention yes, on occasion. Definitely. <laughs> um, and just how bad the advice of online gurus can be, especially in the wellness space, oh. which we come back to again and again. Um, there's nothing like impure or, you know, purifying and detoxifying your body doesn't always jive with actual medical advice. Correct. Um, but, I get, I get what your intent was, which was to avoid having to go to a doctor, which is annoying and seemingly unnecessary. And having to get prescription um, antibiotics all the time isn't a fun thing to do either. So it makes sense to try to figure out your own solution. Yeah. But just knowing what your body's normal is, and that normal might not be the same as someone else's normal, like can be really helpful in just gaining clarity on, okay, let's get to know our vaginas on today's podcast because... I think it's Emily Nagoski who writes in her book, Come As You Are, Yes, You Are Normal, over and over and over again. Everyone's parts down there are just arranged a little differently. Everybody's chemical sort of reaction or or um like pH situation down there is different. Um But knowing what's normal for you and really listening to your body when it's asking for help is important. Yeah, my body was, a, that was a cry for help. Um, <laughs> or just less tahini. <laughs> made a joke that, oh, if you added a little, added a little uh, balsamic vinaigrette, you can have a real salad down there. <laughs> Got the garlic, the yogurt. I'm sorry. I just had, um, I had like a falafel for lunch today. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> All right. Can I, uh, I'm ta- I've taken a breath, y'all. So as you can sort of tell, there is a lot of interesting, uh, burly, 
information about vaginas and what to put in them, what not to put in them out there, as, as my story, uh, I think, makes clear. We're going to talk about some of that data and why it's actually really confusing to know whether or not things like powder are actually safe for our vaginas after a quick break and a message from our sponsor. And we're back. So I mentioned before that some of the data around talcum powder, whether or not it's safe, whether or not it causes ovarian cancer, is murky. Um, we're going to get into why that is, um, but you should know that this is something folks have been studying for a long time. Studies trying to find a link between ovarian cancer and talc powder have been happening for decades. 45 years ago, British researchers analyzed 13 ovarian tumors and found talc particles, quote, deeply embedded in 10. The study, published in 1971, was the first to raise the possibility that talc powder could pose a risk. In 1982, a study in the Journal of Cancer by Daniel Kramer, an epidemiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, showed the first statistical link between genital talc use and ovarian cancer. And to me, that's all the evidence I need. I'm, I'm, I know that, you know, we want to be scientific around here, and I know that replication is important, but if they're looking at ovarian tumors and they find talc particles embedded in there, I mean, where else are they going to go? That's enough evidence for me that having those particles floating around in your ovaries cannot be good for them. Well, that's exactly it, is that, of course, it's important to look at data, look at the overwhelming data, but it's one of those things where I think, why risk it? Why risk getting ovarian cancer if there might be a link? And so I'm not saying that I'm a scientist and that there is definitely a link. I'm saying that enough people in the medical and scientific community have raised the alarm. And right. I think that's, that's reason enough to sort of look twice at, at how we're using this product. Exactly. And there have been a lot more recent studies linking ovarian cancer to the use of talc powder. Um, in fact, the one we really want to dive into is from the University of Virginia by Joellen Schildkraut, an epidemiologist, who led a study where her team interviewed 584 black women with ovarian cancer and 745 black women without the disease. What they found is that nearly 63% of the women with ovarian cancer and 53% of the healthy ones uh, did dust themselves with powder, with baby powder. Um, and so those numbers are concerning on two fronts to me, Bridget. Tell me what you think. Because one, a majority of black women report using baby powder to sort of keep themselves fresh, dry, whatever down the air. Yeah, absolutely. The data definitely shows that black women are using baby powder in that way much more uh, often than their white counterparts. Yeah. And then the second, of course, is the correlation here. Although, you know, you tell me what's statistically significant, but she, the the researcher, um, found it very concerning that 63% of those with ovarian cancer reported using the powder compared to the control group without ovarian cancer had a usage rate at 53%. Right. One possible explanation for why this study showed such a, seemingly such a correlation between yeah. the two is that she studied black women in particular. So other studies did not necessarily use, uh, you know, black women. Her study pretty much focused on black women, their use of the, pro- the product and ovarian cancer. Um, so the American Cancer Society, they acknowledge that the, the link between the two, they kind of, it's, it's a little bit complicated. Yeah. I mean, black women are not studied enough, like women writ large in the scientific community. 
black women in particular are not um, included in these clinical trials and in medical studies um, as often as their white counterparts, which is a big problem. And as we've discussed many times on the show, and I love hearing from all of our medical professionals who are listening, who tweet at us and tell us more about um, other kinds of diseases that present differently amongst women um, or have a specific uh sort of population significance for women of color and how often those things go untreated because of the lack of funding and research available for different populations. Totally. Totally. Um, And really, that's just another one of many reasons why we should be studying different kinds of bodies, different races, um, different ethnicities, different folks along the gender spectrum. We should be studying different kinds of bodies so we can get a better understanding of how different things impact different bodies. I mean, our our world is diverse and the things that inflict our bodies are also diverse and we need to have a better, more thorough understanding of how these, you know, these threats impact different kinds of bodies. I wonder if there's any medical schools who are doing, like, who are bringing intersectionality into... The medical education component, because I would love to shout them out. You know what I mean? I would love to find out what medical schools are teaching doctors um, to and clinical researchers to have an intersectional lens. Totally. That'd be cool to know. So according to the American Cancer Society, lab studies linking non-asbestos talc with cancer are not conclusive. Studies that expose lab animals to asbestos-free talc in various ways have had mixed results, with some showing tumor formation and others not finding any. So that's another reason why um, just specifically this data is is not 100% conclusive. They also look at studies where they rely on folks to self-report their use of things like baby powder. And those are not always super reliable because maybe you misremember, maybe you, you're not, you know, you don't actually know how much you're using when you're using it. Right. You're kind of getting the reporting wrong. That's another reason why I think the American Cancer Society is slow to say this there's a definite link. So yeah. right now the International Agency for Research on Cancer classifies genital use of talc in a kind of a vague way. They say it's quote possibly carcinogenic. But again, is that something you want to gamble with? Right. And just to um clarify, when we talk about non-asbestos talcum powder, why do we even make that differentiation, Bridget? Because talcum powder that contains asbestos is generally understood to be a carcinogenic. Yeah. But no talc powders sold in the United States since 1970 are supposed to have asbestos in them. You guys, before the 1970s, there was asbestos in baby powder. Like, what? If that doesn't tell us anything, it tells us, like, that just goes to show you how the FDA can be slow to figure out what's slowly killing us. Definitely. And again, I mean, if I told... The, the idea that it's being labeled as possibly carcinogenic. <laughs> if I told you something was, if I, if I made you a meal and I said, it's possibly deadly. Right. Would you eat it? Yeah. Would you eat it with gusto? Probably not. Right. And that's how strong this cultural pressure is for women to feel gross about their own vaginas. That's totally. really how powerful that underlying assumption that the way your vagina is or smells is you know, repulsive and unacceptable. And that is a societally developed cultural um, assumption or cultural pressure that's put on women that just isn't levied against men in the same exact kind of way. Totally, totally. Even though, even though we can all agree that, like, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to say, like, men's genitals aren't disgusting, you know what I mean? Or I understand the repulse response 
or the um Emily Nagoski calls it the disgust response in her book about female sexuality. There is this accepted phenomenon that vaginas are gross. Right. That little girls even internalize in their teen years to think that it's disgusting. And that, like, if you feel gross about your, a part of your own body, especially one that is so key to pleasure in your life, that's going to inhibit your ability to actually have a healthy, productive, not productive, but a healthy, pleasurable sex life. Right. And one of the scholars we'll talk more about later on in the show actually gets this so right when she says, if we teach women to be ashamed of their normal, healthy vaginas, right. how, are, how are they supposed to feel when if they have a problem with their vagina? Right. If we already teach them that their health, the way their vagina functions normally is something to be ashamed of, how that's a terrible starting point. Yeah, absolutely. So even though the link between uh, talc and ovarian cancer in the scientific community may not be 100% clear, there are still really vocal uh, scientists and researchers and doctors who are making a lot of noise about this, this risk. The researcher um, in charge of the study from UVA that we were just talking about says, I was a cynic until these recent studies came out. As you look across all these studies, I would say, why use it? It's an avoidable risk for ovarian cancer. And I think that's what it comes down to for me. Exactly. Why why use it? And and others in the scientific community actually go a lot further. Dr. Daniel Kramer from Brigham and Women's Hospital up in Boston, when he first reported on this link between genital talc use and ovarian cancer in 1982, since then he's been calling for warning labels. Like these these things should be disclaimers explicitly put on talcum powder bottles. And this is not happening, and he's been advocating for that ever since. Yeah, there was actually a pretty recent editorial in a uh, journal by Dr. Stephen Narod of the Women's College Research Institute in Toronto, where he said, in the interest of public health, I believe we should caution women against using genital talcum powder. Um, he was not involved in the UVA study, but he did look at the look at the results and said, it's disingenuous to state that there is no evidence that talc is associated with ovarian cancer. Exactly. So that and that's part of the reason I think that um, lawsuit came down on the side of the claimant because there is what what is it like? There's not enough evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt right. that Johnson and Johnson didn't know about these risks and that these risks aren't real. This is well beyond the reasonable doubt territory, right? And actually, you've seen cases earlier where um, lawsuits around talc powder use in ovarian cancer were thrown out right. precisely because a judge has determined, oh, there isn't enough evidence. Right, exactly. And now I think we've we've gone far beyond that point. Of There's well more than enough evidence to say, hey, don't have your mother, sister, daughter, grandmother, you know, nieces use this stuff in their, right. in their genitals. And it's not something we should be advocating for patients or our children or our loved ones to be doing. I think you're right, and so was Johnson & Johnson. I think they were well beyond the point of a reasonable doubt. Let's talk a little bit more about that when we come back from a quick break. And we're back. And I really just have to shout out Bloomberg here because their reporting on Johnson & Johnson really, for me, blew the lid off. Mm. They ended up publishing an internal 1992 Johnson & Johnson memo that seems to indicate the company was pretty much aware of the potential links for their product to, to be linked toward ovarian cancer. So the title of the memo is Major Opportunities and Major Obstacles, which I feel like, I mean, come on, what a title for a memo. Right. Not the kind of memo you would want to see leaked in a deposition, no. of course. Um, in this memo, they acknowledged, quote, negative publicity from the health community on talc 
including inhalation, dust, negative doctor endorsement, and cancer linkage. I like how they just throw that in there as like a casual mention of cancer linkage in a marketing memo. Exactly. This is like a memo on, you know, what what people should we get to endorse our products and what might, you know, what micro-targeting strategies should we move forward with? And oh, by the way, there's a cancer yeah, linkage. People might die. Mm-hmm. No biggie. Who's going to be our spokesperson? <laughs> exactly. Which they go on to talk about for targeting black and Latina women in, in particular. Totally. So... Even understanding that there might be this cause for concern about cancer linkage, that did not stop Johnson & Johnson from targeting black and Hispanic women to account for slumping sales. Um, The memo used in in court that we just read from included a recommendation to, quote, investigate ethnic, African-American, and Hispanic opportunities to grow the franchise, noting that these women accounted for a high proportion of their sales. They proposed going on to team up with Ebony Magazine, suggesting promotions in churches, salons, and barbershops. And while they're at it, maybe we can get a, you know, a perfect spokesperson like Patti LaBelle or Aretha Franklin, a celebrity endorser. Also important to note that neither of those iconic powerhouse divas did this. Right. Neither of them went on to be uh, spokespeople for this campaign. So shout out to Patti LaBelle right. and Aretha Franklin. Um, I'm going to say friends of the show. Yeah, <laughs> let's do it. We're tight, you know. I also think it's important to note that at least when I was growing up, Brands like uh, Johnson & Johnson's Baby Powder and Shower to Shower, which used to be owned by Johnson & Johnson for a while, um, those are legacy brands in black communities. Right. And I think this idea that we were being targeted for something that could make us sick and kill us is enraging. Like The idea that this company would recognize that black women are feeling more anxious about their bodies than their white counterparts. They spend more money on products to to deal with you know body odor and things like that, cosmetics. Um the fact that these companies seized on that and really sort of, I would say, preyed on us, targeted yeah. us, yeah. enrages me. Absolutely. And in fact, black women have been found to spend about four times as much as white women when it comes to expenses on hair. And twice as many black women douche and deodorize when, you know, downstairs when compared to their white counterparts according to research from GW University. And so looking at those humongous disparities, part of me wants to take the economic justice route and say, these are already women who are underpaid chronically. Talk about a lack of equal pay for women of color. And then to make matters worse, we see these huge disparities based on outdated, untrue, uh, unfair stereotypes around body cleanliness that make these women feel especially preyed upon and liable to then feel pressured to buy products that deodorize their body. And it's been well established that douching, by the way, let's just add this in here, is not exactly a good thing for you. Exactly. I mean, going back to that study out of GW, um, those researchers found that like baby powder, over-the-counter products like douches, vaginal deodorizers, and things like that contain ingredients um, that are more likely to be linked to cancer, among other health risks not listed on the label. So basically, they're being pressured because of unfair, racist, untrue stereotypes about their bodies to consume things that are actually making them very sick. Exactly. And there was a really compelling article about um, those gross stereotypes and how rooted in our history in the United States they are called An Odor of Racism, Vaginal Deodorants in African-American Beauty, Culture, and Advertising from the Journal of Advertising Society and Review by Michelle Ferranti. In that article, she writes, quote, for many recently emancipated African Americans, a clean and odor-free body signified personal progress and enterprise and the hope 
for racial assimilation. And then she goes on to point out that the first documented reference to douching comes in an 1803 medical manual for the treatment of West Indian slaves that lists excessive vaginal discharge as a common complaint and prescribes twice daily douching, which we know is bad for you. This is the most, I think, horrifying part of that entire article is like, this comes from a manual on how to treat human beings back at a time when these human beings were treated like livestock. And oh, by the way, even at that point, we can, you know, stereotype how these women's bodies were naturally functioning as somehow impure or bad, which, by the way, goes into the entire racist undercurrent here that's trying to dehumanize these women to begin with. Totally. And I think that is exactly it. It's this idea that is so pervasive that it's been with us since, you know, since it's been it's been ingrained in the fabric of America that right. if you were a freed slave and you wanted to signal to others that you were, you know, taking good care of yourself and that you were ready for, you know, it's it's so sad even just saying this out loud, it makes it breaks my heart because I can imagine these people wanting to signal to those around them that yeah. they were deserving a full rights, a full personhood. And right going out of their way to signal to others, like, hey, I keep my body clean, I smell great, blah, 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 that that is a way of signaling that we are deserving Mm. of something that should just be born with you. You should just be born with full personhood and the full rights that you get with citizenship. And they were basically making themselves sick to prove something that should have just been innate with with being humans. And that's, like, what comes from historical institutions like slavery that are founded on the dehumanization of human beings. Exactly. And for those of us who are feeling squeamish about this in, you know, in light of the country that we live in and, and it's, it's hard to justify. I get it. It's hard to justify and reconcile patriotism with these, with the fact that our country was founded with the institution of slavery behind it. But here's a quote to chew on for a second from a founding father you might have heard of, Thomas Jefferson. Okay, Thomas Jefferson is on the record as having said that black women have a, quote, strong and very disagreeable odor. Okay, so this this all sort of comes back to this idea that there's this misogynist twist to racism from the founding of our country on forward that not only posits this idea, uh, this racist idea that blacks reek, and as Omisake Natasha Tinsley writes, she's a professor of African and African diaspora studies at the University of Texas in Austin. She writes in an article for Time that, quote, if racism posits that blacks reek and misogyny teaches us that vaginas are rank, how difficult does it become for black women to love the scent of our healthy vaginas? I think she hits the nail right on the head. I mean, and that's what infuriates me so much about this is that I see that companies like Johnson and Johnson are using that anxiety that black women are ingrained with that, that that's rooted in racism and slavery and all this awful stuff to sell us products that might kill us. Oh, for and money that lines their pockets. Exactly, right. exactly. And she goes on in that article to say, Johnson & Johnson and other companies are ready to profit from these myths of the excessive black vagina. They're willing to capitalize on our internalized misogynoir, even if we die in the process. For decades, companies, including Johnson & Johnson, continued marketing to encourage black women to spend money on talc powder, 
which could cause cancer in our reproductive organs, even as they promised to, quote, freshen them. Because the buyers were women, they were the advertisers' targets. Because they were women, they were vulnerable to the side effects that the companies never even exposed. That disgusting. It's disgusting, and it's infuriating. And I think being told to have this anxiety internalized about our own bodies and then using that anxiety against us to line your pockets and we get killed in the process... I just can't even wrap my head around it. It just does not get worse than that. And you know some jerk got promoted and got a corner office for the winning marketing strategy that got more black women to buy this stuff. Oh, definitely. You know, that's definitely. what happens. And I, I would venture to guess it wasn't a black woman who got oh, the corner office. Oh, are you office. kidding? Of course not. Of course not. So it's just, it, it, it is, it is, it's everything that I hate about Racism meets misogyny meets capitalism in the most disgusting way. It is. It is. And I think some of you out there might be thinking, well, why is it so bad to for a company to, you know, know their base audience if their base audience is black women? Isn't it respectful to, you know, advertise to that that specific audience? If they're buying it, why not advertise to that? Exactly. I I could I could. actually see people making that argument. But as Robin Means Coleman, a professor of communication studies and African-American studies at University of Michigan says, we actually do want that, but we do not want companies to market potentially carcinogenic products to us. And so I think as, as women, as women of color, we do want companies to market to us, but that should not include marketing products to us that might get us killed. Right, it's poison. And that's where the criminal negligence came in. That's where the courts ruled that knowing of this potential risk and ignoring that, not alerting clients to that, not alerting the public to that, and aggressively targeting communities of color is what put Johnson & Johnson in the hot seat. Totally. So when the courts did rule on this case, the verdict, which was decided by a 10 to 2 vote, included 10 million in compensatory damages and another 62 million in punitive damages. Way more than the attorneys were even asking for, but the court sent a very clear message to companies like Johnson & Johnson that this behavior was negligent and worth punishment for. And at that point, Salter, the son of the then deceased woman who had lost her life to ovarian cancer bowed his head and wept in court. You know, and it's like, of course, that's great. Those millions are fine, but nothing will bring your mother back. I'm sure he would much rather have his mom back than all of that money. Um, What I want to just drive home about this whole situation is that in the end, we all need to be more comfortable with our bodies, particularly women of color. I think that we need to acknowledge that, you know, vaginas are not supposed to smell like baby powder. They're not supposed to smell like an autumn rain. They're supposed to smell like vaginas. And I think going back to that Time article that um, Tinsley wrote, why do black women work so hard to keep our vaginas from smelling like we ever bleed, orgasm, sweat, or eat catfish? And we do those things, and our our bodies, because they are bodies that function normally, are going to reflect them in odor. I think there is a totally understandable response from women who feel uncomfortable with vaginal odor, right? Like, that is a thing that people are uncomfortable with. I think it's worth asking you why you're uncomfortable with that, if that's your experience. It's worth talking to your doctor about it and finding out, you know, we have a perception of what is normal that is not always grounded in truth. We have a a message that's marketed to women about what the normal, perfect body should look and smell like that we know is not always close to what reality would actually have to say about that or what a medical professional would have to say about it. So if you're ever feeling insecure about your body odor, 
talk to a professional, talk to a medical professional, and know that that insecurity might be you wrestling with these internalized messages that are put in place in our media to actually drive a profit home for somebody else. I mean, that's part of the trip of living in a capitalist, patriarchal, effed up society, that we are all (laughs) unpacking this stuff all the time. We internalize them. I definitely have internalized some messed up stuff about my own body just based on the messages I've gotten since childhood. Anybody would. I think it's it's fair. That is a fair outcome. And I think it's about not getting caught up in it and stopping and taking a beat and saying, yeah, why do I feel that way about my body? Why am I having this reaction? Um, And unpacking it a little bit. And where did I learn to feel disgusted about my own body? And when did yeah. you learn? Because I, I think those messages get passed down from parent to child Definitely. often. And think about what, what you know, are you having a repulse response? Like, are you having a disgust response to a part of your body? And if you're doing that vocally in front of other people, including in front of impressionable young ones, like, those are the messages that young ones around you are going to grow up thinking that this is normal to feel grossed out about a part of my body. And I, I, I would argue that that is a shame-creating experience. It definitely is. And again, my mom is a medical professional, and she definitely, I definitely remember her putting powder in her underpants. I hope to God she's not doing it now, and if she is, I have to stop her. I think this is the moment. Like, if you are listening to this episode and you are using talc powder in your underpants, or your sister is, maybe your grandma that's a little bit old school, your nana's doing it, your whoever in your life is doing it, Make sure they know that there are risks there. And even though I know, I know we have not, they have not made the scientific link 100% clear. Right. Is it worth it? Is it worth having something that the American Cancer Society says is quote, possibly carcinogenic? Is it worth having that in such an intimate area? And I think the answer is no. And if your Nana, sister, friend, whoever really, really, really needs to have powder in their underpants to feel clean, what can they do? Well, the good news is there is an alternative that won't give you cancer, uh, and that is actually sold on the shelves right around the same section. So if you are looking at a powder that's safer for that kind of use, um, know that you can find cornstarch-based powders. And there is no study showing that cornstarch poses any of those potential risks the American Cancer Society has been suggesting about baby powder. So for women who are looking for an alternative, know that some of Johnson & Johnson's competitors provide powders that, that are really made of cornstarch only. So do your due diligence, do your research, find out what is, you know actually medically safe before putting it in anywhere near or downstairs. And um, cornstarch-based powders are a good place to start if that's if that's your jam. So, Sminty listeners, we want to hear from you. What, what came up for you during this episode? Have you used baby powder yourself to feel more comfortable with the way that your body naturally exists? And if so, what are some of the ways that you have grown up with the messages that we receive on those fronts and how how have you internalized or overcome some of these negative uh, impressions? We'd love to hear from you. Bridget, where can they hit us up? They can hit us up on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You, on Twitter at Mom Stuff Podcast, and as always on email, old-fashioned style, at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Mm-hmm. 